Buckle up. You are about to enter the Draws Cast podcast. Your host, author, and motivational speaker, Jeff Drozowski, will transport you through the world of motivation and leadership, always keeping an eye on having some fun, too. Sometimes with a guest, other times just Jeff. Either way, you will leave better equipped to succeed than when you came in. Here he is, the Draws, Jeff Drozowski. Thank you, Kyla. Hello and thank you, author, motivational speaker, trainer, coach, video blogger, and podcaster, Jeff Drozdowski here, and welcome to my show, the Drozcast Podcast, speaking of motivation and leadership. We take time out from our regularly scheduled programming to bring guest number two into the Drozcast. Before we do, a few bits of news and notes. We have updated the website. That's right. DrawsTalks.com has made it available for you to become part of the Draws Talks Nation of Followers email style. If you sign up, you will get your Draws Talks info and special offers right in your inbox. When you sign up, you will also receive a free download of a previous DrawsCast episode. But this is only the beginning of stuff available on DrawsTalks.com. Signing up to join the nation will also make you one of the first people to find out about my first webinar, when it is, and how you can sign up. While you're at it, head over to my YouTube channel, Jeff Drozdowski. Check it out. Like and, and subscribe if you do indeed like what you see and hear. Now, on to my guest. A training and development veteran for 30-plus years, Jim Knight facilitates keynotes, training and coaching on a variety of interactive topics, including sessions revolving around organizational culture, world-class service, building rock star teams, hiring and retaining rock stars, employee branding, performance management, philanthropy, and facilitation training. A lifelong Floridian, Jim cut his teeth in the training field through the hospitality industry, starting out in a snack bar at Gatorland Zoo, and later as a restaurant staff level employee for Olive Garden, and then Hard Rock Cafe. He eventually became the head of the School of Hard Rocks, running point on all learning and development functions for Hard Rock International. During his time at Hard Rock, Jim reinvented the training world at Hard Rock to where it was recognized industry-wide through awards ranging from the coveted Telly Award in 2000 for their guest service video in 2007 for their menu rollout video. Along with those awards, Jim and his team garnered Training Director Forum's 1998 prize for re-engineering training and won Brandon Hall's Gold Best in Class Award for their service recovery e-learning course. Jim has also been recognized by Training Magazine and been featured in Forbes Magazine, Entrepreneur Magazine, Nation's Restaurant News, Business News Daily, and Fox Business News. Jim is now the founder and owner of Night Speaker, where he finds himself a highly sought-after keynote speaker for events in many industries. He is also the best-selling author of Culture That Rocks, How to Revolutionize Your Company's Culture. On Amazon and Barnes & Noble, I assume, Jim? Amazon for sure. Amazon not, not for Barnes sure. Barnes & Noble yet. Okay, very good. So, Jim Knight, welcome to the Drawscast. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it, man. It's uh, it's taken a while for me to get here, but I'm super happy, and uh, I'm thrilled to see your success as well. So I'm, I'm thankful to be on the Drawscast. Awesome. Thanks so much. So just for the uh, listeners, uh, a bit of knowledge for the listener, uh, we are 
doing this podcast remotely, so to speak. We're in Boca Raton, Florida at a uh, trainer's conference, and uh, the weather outside is raining, and it it's is. typical Florida weather for this time of year, right? It is, yeah. Every once in a while, a summer will come through, and there's hardly any rain, but for the most part, it will uh, it will rain two or three times. So, you know, the old adage, if you don't like the weather in Florida, just wait a few minutes, and it'll change on you. And right now, it looks a little little gray and drizzly. Yeah. So, so you grew up in Florida, and you've lived in Florida your whole life. My whole correct? life. Yeah. yeah. Native Central Floridian, um, Kissimmee, if you kind of know where that is, yep. but Walt Disney World's in my backyard, and I'm now a little bit on the western side of Orlando. But yeah, I love it here, and uh, born and raised. Probably will be here the rest of my life, I would guess, as well. Very good. So were you uh, growing up, were you uh, like people get real excited about Walt Disney and they get really absorbed with it? Or were you a Disney geek, so to speak? You know, um, I was here before Disney. I wouldn't say I'm a Disney geek, but I would say that um, it's nice to have them here, not just because I've made my living off of tourism, but I'm a performer at heart. So I kind of feel like I've got a little bit of that blood in me. Although, you know, you look at me, I don't think I would be able to fit in in the Disney culture. But um <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm certainly a, a, a performer wannabe in my head, at least. Yeah, exactly. And that's a perfect segue here to really my first question. You grew up in Florida, and like so many of us who like to be in front of people, uh, you wanted to be a rock star growing up. And when I mean a rock star, you wanted to be a musician. I did. Rock star, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could certainly interchange that word and do it as uh, whether it's a musician or a rock star in, uh, in your own world, in your own industry. And uh, I wanted both, but certainly... Um, the true nature of the word. I wanted to be a musician and went to college to get my music degree and thought, this is what I'm going to do for a living. You know, and ultimately, I discovered that to make a living doing that, you had to be good. So although I have my degree, I changed careers because, you know, I was okay as a singer, but uh, I wouldn't say that I was great, that I was going to make a lot of money. You have to be a great monster at doing that. So uh, I changed careers. But yeah, a musician was uh, actually what I thought it was going to be my entire life. So what was your main instrument that you played? Or- it was voice. Actually, okay. when you have okay. your degree, your associate of arts, you can use, uh, you basically are supposed to play two instruments. Your voice can be one. You have to learn the other one. I, I scratched my way through piano enough to get by. I actually had to write a couple songs on the piano. I um, could not play a lick for you right now if I had to. Um, it is one of my one regrets. I really do wish I would have... Uh, just persevered in practice, like my parents said, or like my college professor said, and uh, just never did that. So now it gets harder as you get older to try and learn an instrument. But, you know, I can still sing. I do a lot of formal singing, choral, church, opera. You know, I could do a wedding or a funeral if I had to, you know, a little Lord's Prayer or an Ave Maria or something. But not exactly the rock star like my friends are. But, um, you know, I can hold my own now if I need to. Have you uh, laid down any voice work uh, that you have at Um, home or something? Not really. You know, I was actually, uh, there was a local band who were very good friends with uh, Michael Jackson. And they wrote a song for him and we had a recording studio. And I did some background vocals for that. Just more as a goof. It was our choral department and we probably had five or six guys and we did some background tracks so you know mj actually heard my voice at one time but um no nothing really of of any substance no what what i'm doing right now as a living is uh probably as close to being a rock star as i'm ever gonna get and that you are you're definitely a rock star in the industry that you're in so so you started out your working career at uh, the gatorland zoo yeah it's hilarious i you know once again you think you're gonna be a musician and uh even before that i probably thought you know, my dad was a, was a great police officer, a fireman, a paramedic. 
Um, I probably thought about doing that. And, uh, and I said, I'm going to go to school to be a musician. I discovered that when I was in high school. And then, you know, lo and behold, my first job is at a gator farm, believe it or not. It's actually a really cool amusement park. It's a theme park in Central Florida. Probably the best kept secret out there. But, um, yeah, I sold fish. And uh, people took frozen fish and fed the alligators. I worked in the snack bar. I ate alligator every single day. No lie, like fried alligator. Worked in a um, in a retail store that they had. I actually, in the morning, in one particular area, I had to go get a baby alligator from out of its pen to wrap it with some duct tape so that people could hold on to it. It's probably about two and a half feet long. And I had to go get this massive boa constrictor so that we could put it around people's neck. And that was the photo area. And back then we just had Polaroids. So you'd take a picture yeah. with them holding a, an alligator and a snake. And it was a hoot, man. I had a, a lot of fun and I was there for three years. So, you know, it's one of those jobs that I was very thankful that I had. But, um, you know, it's probably the last time that I would work, I think, in a theme park environment. <laughs> yeah, but I, I got some skills out of it. <laughs> your one and only time. That's that's it. That's it. Yep. So then you moved down to Olive Garden and then your journey really started to take off once you got to Hard Rock. It did. Yeah. Olive Garden was cool. I had, uh, I was just a host there. I was there for three years, but uh, I was uh, in the heyday back then when they were owned by General Mills. They're owned by Darden now. Um, and in central Florida, Olive Garden was, was probably popping out one unit every seven days. Mm-hmm. So it was fun. I did a little bit of training for them as well, but that's where I really got my skills, get my foot in the door at Hard Rock. Um, but Hard Rock, yeah, there's no doubt about it. That's really where things started to really spin off for me. Excellent. So as you uh, got into Hard Rock, uh, you said you started out as a server, correct? Started off as a host. As so a host. Seating okay. tables, yeah. Okay, very good. So did you have a lightning bolt moment where you said, all right, now this is where I want to be for a really long period of time? Or did this uh, Hard Rock experience grow kind of organically and slowly? Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, I think uh, a little bit of both, but there's no doubt about it. The day one just absolutely rocked my world. I I was, you know, imagine an orientation and I talk about this, like literally in the first pages of my book, imagine an orientation where the guy doing the orientation has hair below his shoulders and he's wearing sunglasses during the whole thing, an entire half the day. And I couldn't tell, you know, if he was trying to be cool or if he was high, I just, you know, it, it was just a different feel. And then, you know, 90 decibels of Zeppelin are blaring in my ears throughout the whole building. I literally could reach up and touch Eddie Van Halen's Frankenstein guitar. This is his red, black, and white striped guitar. And I'm looking around and, and literally flitting about where we're probably the most unique humans I'd ever seen on the planet. I mean, just all colors and, and just people thinking and acting and behaving differently. Tattoos, body piercing, mohawks, pink hair, whatever it was. And I think at that moment, I thought, I'm not even sure that I fit into this. I mean, I was a fairly, I would say, conservative in a lot of ways. And then you plop me into this environment. It's If rock and roll had a, a physical, tangible being, I think I was in the middle of it. And so I kind of thought to myself, I'm not sure that this is going to be for me, but I liked it and it was fun and uh, I wanted to be a part of it. So, you know, that started me on my journey of me thinking about things differently. I thought I had skills. I certainly did from Olive Garden. And, uh, and in fact, I have even told um, the, the, the people that were interviewing me, I don't want to be a server or a bartender. I just want to be an awesome, well-paid host. And uh, for those people that um, are in your audience that know about that, Hard Rock in Orlando is one of the busiest restaurants in the world. We pumped about 7,000 people a day through that thing, doing $35,000 hours, which is unheard of in the restaurant industry. So if all you're doing is a host and I got a chance to touch all 7,000 people, 
it, it was fun for me to think I was, you know, a, a part of their experience. I was going to hand them off to the server, the bartender, whoever. But for me, I said, I want to make a difference in every person's life, at least on the shifts that I work. So, you know, it was probably a slow burn after that, that every day just got better and better that I think I had this collection of misfit toys, people that were probably broken somewhere else. They couldn't get a job or didn't look the part or didn't behave a certain way somewhere else. And here's an environment where everybody loved them for the way that they were. And for me, what you get with that is loyalty. And I think people stuck around with that. And we literally were the island of misfit toys. So, you know, when somebody allows you to look and be and say and do whatever you want and, and what you get paid to do that. And then you start to travel and train people around the world get out of the way. It's just, uh, you know, if I could do what I'm doing right now and still be with the brand, I'd probably figure out a way to do that. I was there 21 years. So something stayed inside of me and I fell in love with that. I still have a mad crush on the brand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you still, uh, present the, uh, the, the hard rock or the rock star, uh, look and and feel. So, and, you know, just sitting here, uh, you know, looking at you as you're talking about hard rock, I, I can tell that you still have a definite affection. I mean, that's I a, do. that's a, yeah. you know, not only did you uh, work there for 21 years, but you, you know, based on the kind of awards that you received and, and, you know, some of the things I, I know about what you did there, um, you know, you transformed a lot that happened in the, uh, in the training uh, in the training there. world, for yeah, sure. Yeah. It, you know, it's um, our original founder, Isaac Tiger, had always said that, you know, Hard Rock was going to be a stepping stone for, for everybody. Not, hardly anybody's going to stay the course forever. That, that brand's been around now, I think, 47 years. It started in 71. Mm-hmm. Um, I inherited an awesome company. That, that culture, that brand was already there in place. So my goal, at least from the training world, and I'm smack dab, as you know, our world is in the middle of the employee life cycle. I don't really have any say so as to how they come in or how they leave, but all the stuff in the middle, how we we teach and train and develop and communicate and reward and recognize and love on people, that that sort of was in my, my wheelhouse. So, you know, all the best training in the world is not going to help a bad hire, but I do know that the people that somebody hired did a fantastic job. And when I got there, it was already in a great place. So my job is just to make sure I didn't screw it up. And and I thought if I could leave it in a better place, again, at least in my world, and, and thanks a lot for mentioning the, the awards. I mean, anything from print, video, e-learning, instructor-led, you know, my team was fantastic. And, and although I maybe started off on my own, I built a really good team. I had a killer boss who allowed me to go out there and, and uh, try some things and be unique and different. And so I think my mind, you know, growing up on comic books, watching movies, just trying to think creatively, um, you know, instead of just being apathetic and resting on your laurels, I wanted to break stuff and make it better. So th- the fact that I worked in an environment that somebody said go and, and do and take a chance um, allowed me to challenge the status quo. So I probably get credit for that back then. Um, I'm not sure if it was transformational, but I would say at least from the training world, I felt like I had made a mark on that. And uh, what a great environment to do it in, too. It's a safe place for me to to sort of play with my toys out there. I had fun. It was great. Yeah. So it sounded like uh, you were influenced greatly by the person who was your boss. Uh, yeah. You just mentioned the kind of his leadership style. He yeah. let you go out. Uh, and and do your thing. He did. And break things and reinvent and, and do it. And that's amazing. When you get an opportunity to do that, that's great. So did that leadership style uh, wear off on you or rub off on you? It did, 100%. Um, you know, his name's Mike Shipley. He uh, he came from a Bennigan's background, but uh, 
he and I were both trained um, with the seven habits of highly effective people. He already had some really great innate leadership mm-hmm. qualities. I would say that mine were a little bit more rougher around the edges. I mean, I was a I was a hardcore test giving trainer. Like if you didn't pass a test or if you were a manager in training, you showed up five minutes late. I was sending you home like these days. You wouldn't do that. We'll do anything to get people to stay with us. But back then I was pretty tough and I thought. You know, I've got to change my leadership style because if I'm going to run an apartment and actually when he left the company, he was only with Hard Rock for five years. I was able to uh, to, to move into his role and I was very lucky to do that. But I watched his leadership style where he was very, I would say, hands off. I mean, in a lot of ways. And so I'll, I'll go back for a second. When I first transitioned from being a staff member to a manager, so I did manage for a year in the Orlando Hard Rock and that environment as a manager already is is phenomenal. Um, that that gave me a lot to think about. But I made a promise to myself that I don't care what people were doing unless it was a terminable, uh, you know, fireable offense. I would let people get away with stuff. And I did it for about six months. And so I would have the conversations in a side station. I'd say, come on, man, you're, you know, you're going to get me in trouble. And you know, this is wrong. And uh. But then at some point, you develop a relationship where if you needed to bring the thunder and you had to write people up, you did. So I learned sort of the same thing from a corporate standpoint that when I would get over to the support center, I said, you know, I'm not going to nitpick at every little thing. And on top of that, I was probably the first person in our entire office of about 200 where I allowed our, our my team to, to work off a flex schedule. I don't care when they worked. They can come and go. They want to sleep in. They want to take the day off. I really didn't care. It didn't matter to me as long as they were getting work done. So I managed off a of performance versus off of a time code. And really, um, that put me at odds with some people in the office. They didn't like that because they wanted people to be in there from 9 to 5. And I kept telling them, we're a global organization. We're all over the place. I don't even understand what nine to five would mean to people on the other side of the world. So, you know, giving people flex schedule, not being so rough, not managing through threats and punishment and fear, but nothing but a lot of love and support um, was really what I got from Mike. And I'm hoping, you know, knock on wood, I'm hoping that that's what translated to my team as well. And honestly, the awards that we won, I maybe was the catalyst initially, but they're the ones who are actually doing the work. So, it's kudos to them. And I felt comfortable the day that I left that I'd put them in a really good place. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you were a man ahead of your time because <laughs> flex scheduling is more and more the norm yeah, uh, yeah. out in, in most of corporate America. It is, yeah. So, yeah, yeah so right. good stuff. So I'm going to ask you to be critical of yourself here okay. for just a second. Uh, regrets uh, or maybe one or two things that you – as you're going through your learning cycle in your career, maybe yeah. you look back and say, I, I wish I would have done that differently. Yeah. Um, you know, I probably I, I probably have several. Um, I have one in particular that actually just popped in my head. And then I think from a leadership style, I would change different. But, you know, there was this one moment we were coming up on our 40th anniversary at Hard Rock. My CEO had asked us and tasked me with producing a 40th anniversary video. Well, the problem with trying to, to group together all the video that you can get from a brand that's that old is mm-hmm. it's in every form you can think about. There's right. beta, Betamax, VHS, reel to reel, DVD. Well, he wanted to digitize all that almost like a, a newsroom would do so that you can pull anything you want to. Well, the problem is with that, you have to meta tag. So if I actually had a video of you, if you and I right now talking on a podcast, I'd put Jeff Drajowski, I'd put the date, I'd put the location so I could search it any way I want to. So this is a monumental pain in the butt. But he wanted me to do it. We wound up creating five or six videos out of it. The problem is he told me at all costs, I need to shut everything down, stop doing any type of training, 
Ali Ali Yankenfree, my entire team was all dedicated to doing this because we had a very short timeline. He wanted very specific things. So we were on Craigslist ordering like 40 beta machines. We had everybody coming in on the weekends, their spouses, their kids. Everybody was all on. Um, there really didn't. Nothing new happened during that time. We work on the weekends. We had people cancel vacations. And uh, I, I went into him at one point and just said, um, our people can't work any harder. And I think we're probably going to miss the date. Um, and he was pretty upset with me. And um, his words were something to the effect of, well, then I'll I'll just get rid of all of them. I'll fire the, the entire department if they can't hit the date. Like it was a pretty hardcore comment. Yeah. And um, I went back and I shouldn't have done this. It's a big regret. And I told the team, I told him that he was upset. Um, if we didn't hit this number, he's getting rid of all of us. We're all going to be fired. And, you know, it's one of those things that you learn as a green manager. Actually, I'd been sure. further along in my career, but I should have known better to keep that close to the vest and maybe gone the inspirational route and try and motivate the team or, or use some other tactic. But I was frustrated. And, you know, we're all on 18, 20 hours. We're sleeping in the corporate office. And, you know, he says that. And, and that was a tough one to swallow. So, you know, I wish I could go back in time and change that. I actually lost an immediate team member right after it. He was like, that's it, then I'm done. I um, mean, that was part of my course group of seven. And then I lost another one to soon after that. And they can both attribute it going back to that moment. So that's a big regret. I think in general, though, your question also is around just my leadership style. I think my last two or three years, I really regretted not spending enough face time with the team. I got to a point that I could get from my car to my office without making eye contact with people, jump right on email and start getting rid of all the stuff, the tasks, the tactical, technical things you need to do, knowing full well that the seven, the other people were the ones doing the work. And, you know, I think I got a little bit nervous. Sometimes I'd come in and say hello to somebody and I might have one or two um, you know, chatty Cathy's, you know, very good, very good team members, but boy, we'll, we'll sit there and yak for 30 minutes. And, uh, you know, that, that may have been a problem for me. And now I think it's probably some of the best use of time that I could have used. So again, if I had a time machine, I'd go back and say, my regret is I probably would have liked to have spent a little bit more time face to face and inspire them, motivate them, love on them because they're the ones who are actually getting the work done for the, uh, for the, I think the uh, entire brand. So yeah, if I could think about one instance or, you know, a style, those would be sure. my changes. Great. All right. So you had this uh, really uh, amazing career at Hard Rock. And at some point or another, you said to yourself, you know what? I'm loving being up in front of a group and yeah. speaking and controlling the room and all those things that you do as a professional speaker. Um, when did you, or at what point did you say, you know what, I'm thinking I want to take this to another level. I want to take it outside of my comfort zone, yeah. right, at Hard Rock, and you wanted to jump out onto a stage in front of a bunch of strangers, maybe outside of your industry, and still be able to hold them. And that's a challenge, but that that's an adrenaline rush, too. It is. Yeah. Well, and I said earlier, this is probably as close to being a rock star as I'm ever going to get, right? Uh, you know, I, I was with Hard Rock from 1991 to 2012, and I can point back to the moment that I actually did my first outside of Hard Rock engagement. Somebody had called the office. They were in the Midwest. It was some company that didn't have a Hard Rock near them and said, hey, do you have anybody on your team that could come over and just talk about the brand? Just talk about the cool culture. It's going to be over lunch. It's brainless. You know, it's, it's nothing media. You're not even learning anything except about the company. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, yeah, I'll go do it. You know, the, I, I love doing it. It's a mini orientation type of deal. It was for free. It was local. And I went and did it. And uh, there was somebody in the audience after that session who came up and said, 
that's awesome. Can you come do that for my company? And how much do you charge? And that's that's when it started to click in my head. And uh, I did start charging people. It was pretty cheap. It was only like five hundred bucks, and then I moved up to seven fifty or whatever it was. Right. But I never ever took the money. I gave all the money to Hard Rock. So this is what I, I really wanted to make sure that I was beyond reproach. I never wanted anybody to ever come to me and say, "Geez." Jim Knight's not getting his work done or he's liking, you know, his, his side job better than his, his actual job. So I started funding things. So I actually had, um, you know, I had a revenue line on, on my P and L, which was fantastic. So, you know, training departments, we spend money, but when you can start becoming a revenue generating initiative, that's pretty, pretty awesome. And so I think over time I learned that that, that was a real strength for me. And part of it, even going back before that, between the time I was at Gatorland and starting at Hard Rock and even Olive Garden, I was a middle school teacher. So I had done that for six years. So teaching off of some teacher's lesson plan, starting off as a substitute teacher and then eventually in a in an instructional standpoint, as a middle school teacher, having a music degree opening up hard rocks around the world where you're taking, you know, sometimes 200, 300 people in one department. I mean, some of these hotel casinos, huge departments and being able to teach them in a platform instructional design standpoint. I loved all of that. So that really was a slow burn for me. It started early on being in central Florida performance, heavy, you know, Kissimmee, with my middle school background, with my degree, teaching at Hard Rock, and now somebody wants to pay you to get up and do it. So I won't say it was a massive epiphany at that time to say in 2003. I just knew that when I left in 2012, on the side, I was doing about 10 to 12. I was doing about one gig a month, and that was just without even trying. They're just falling in your lap. So my last year and a half, I knew I had a I had an exit strategy. I wanted to make sure that my team was in a fantastic place. The brand was in a great place. We were making record bonuses. Uh, we'd gotten back to the glory days after a little bit of a struggle with the brand in the mid-90s, as everybody did. Um, so I, I think for sure, if I had to point, I'd say 2010, I made the conscious decision within a year and a half to two years, I'm going to go try this for a living and see what happens. So it's um, I'm not looking back. I mean, I, like I said, I still have a mad crush on, on the business that I left, but boy, it sure was a perfect setup for what I'm doing right now. Yeah, that's great. Uh, great stories there. Um, here you are, you're, you're a speaker and you've been real successful uh, at it. Uh, like I said, well, you know, even crossing over into different industries and whatnot. Uh, but now that you've kind of matured into that, I've noticed that you seem to be taking on a little bit more of a, a mentor role to some of us who are trying to break into the, this industry. And, and is that a conscious effort? Just kind of organically uh, work that way or? Uh, you know, it's probably more organic. Um, I'd like to say it's conscious. I, I'd like to say, uh, you know, boy, I'm at a point that I can start teaching other people to do what I do or at least help them on their journey. But, um, you know, my my long and winding road took me from being an operator to being a trainer to being a professional speaker, now author like you are. Um, I, I will say that there is a little bit of mentorship that's starting to happen. I'm not an expert. There's no way. I would never, ever claim to be an expert. But I am a professional. I mean, it is what I do for a living. So, you know, the fact that I've had some success and I think part of it is branding, part of it might be luck, but, you know, I'm lucky that I've got skills that have just been developed over years. And I do have friends that come to me every once in a while and say, oh, I want to do what you do. I want to be a speaker. How do you do that? 
you know, and I get my first, you know, pushback is, well, are you good? Like, do you have any content? Do you have a killer delivery style? Because most speakers have one or the other. They don't have both. And so when you can master both, if you got awesome content to share and you can bring something spectacular to the party when you're delivering it, now you're unstoppable. So, you know, if, if people look at me as, as sort of, um, I don't know, a mentor because I've had some success. I'm doing about 90 to 95 of these a year, um, exclusive with the Speaker Bureau. Um, that doesn't happen by accident. So, again, knock on wood, you know, you never want to get cocky about that. I don't want to become apathetic and sit back and go, look how great things are. And then all of a sudden, whoop, you know, the uh, stuff could fall underneath me real quick. Um, but I will say that if somebody came to me and wanted um, some help on how to be a speaker, you know, that's one thing I have an abundance of. I have uh, opinions, I have advice, and I can at least steer steer you away from some of the things that might be scary. Whether it's, do you self-publish a book or do you go with a publisher? Do you go with a speaker bureau or do you try and do it on your own? How do I get started and even figuring out what do I charge people? Like these are things that now just because of the school of hard knocks, and that's pun intended, um, I think that um, I've been able to give people some a little bit of some sage advice. No expert. But um, if somebody wants to look at me as a mentor, I'm, I'm able to help them out. Yeah. And there's a lot of uh, those little things that people don't think about. Uh, when you go to a conference and you see a keynote and they're up there and they're doing their thing and they're really good at it, there's so much more behind the curtain. There is. Isn't there? There uh, is. Before you even get up on that stage. Oh, yeah. Uh, including a lot of practice. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I would say, you know, and you had mentioned in my uh, my intro, that was a long mouthful intro that you did. Yeah, that was great. I appreciate that. No problem. I, I cut it in half. <laughs> uh, yeah, you did. You did, actually. I thought you were doing the whole thing. I was going to throw a tomato at you. Um, you know, it's funny. I teach a facilitation class. It's my longest topic. Um you know, I'll do stuff around hiring and retaining and culture and service and yeah and all that. But when somebody wants facilitation help, it's a two-day commitment. It's hardcore. There's a lot that goes into it. Um, I can almost guarantee that people will be dramatically better coming out of that two-day hardcore because it's a tactical skill. It's a technical skill. And I do think that you can get better at it. It isn't that you just have a natural gift to gab. You actually have to work on the stuff. So I'm with you on that. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny. The secret sauce to that, no matter how much I talk about it, we will do exercises. You're going to do uh, a, a little speech in front of a group of people. We're going to videotape you. I'm giving you hardcore feedback, like the whole thing. And yet the, the silver bullet, honestly, is practice, practice, practice. So, you know, I would always encourage if somebody ever wanted to go and do this, that's the first thing. You got to go and volunteer for everything. You got to go local college, go to your chamber of commerce, volunteer and do something at church, do stuff for your family and friends for free. Don't worry about making money. You need to get your sea legs. And, you know, one day the, the money will come there. But for sure, there is so much that goes behind it. And I think, again, part of the secret to my success is I've been doing this now for about 25 years, although technically six years as a professional, it's already been in my DNA. So it's funny when I'm on stage, you make a great point, too. When I'm on stage, I see everything. There's nothing that gets past me. I'm a I'm an animation king. There's not a bullet point or an image that doesn't come up on a slide unless I want it to. So I am clicking. I see people's eyes. I know when people are tired. I know when people are writing notes to each other. I know the temperature of the room. I know if it's too light, too cold. I know exactly what my next click is going to be from my next slide. I, I know all of that. And so if something isn't going right, it allows me to be flexible and switch on a dime. That's what makes a great teacher. That's what makes a great cop. You know, a policeman, when you're so in tune with what's going on, and I think all of these things, the brand new speaker isn't going to think like that. They're thinking, 
I got to get through my content and I've got such amount of time. And those are just the only two things I can think about. But the really good ones get to a point that it's a fine art now to see what could I do to rock people's faces off? And it can be loud and crazy and over the top and grandiose, like you know I, I tend to get. Or it can be quiet and cool and subtle and nothing needs to be said. And all of that's important. So um, I know that's a long answer to your question, but it is about practice, practice, practice. There's no doubt about it. Yep, totally agree. So you're probably going to be at this for quite a few years yet. Have you started to think about past being a professional speaker, like maybe another mountain that you want to climb? Great you, question. I know that you mentioned uh, in, in the bio and, and, and knowing you that you're uh, you're philanthropic as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people, as they make it through their their working career, they end up in some kind of philanthropy. Is that something that you've thought about? I'm not f- sure if I would do it uh, for a living. I, I say not only do I teach about philanthropy, so my entire life is philanthropic, meaning um, there's 10% of all the portions of my proceeds from my book and my speaking engagements go somewhere. It either goes to, you know, a therapeutic wilderness program called leap or it goes to no kid hungry because we're in the you know, hospitality business and, right. you know, hunger related stuff is something I focus on. Um, I do take trips every two or three years. I went to Ethiopia about five or six years ago, two years ago, I went to Tanzania. There are things that I'll do in villages to help out. Like I like doing that stuff. So I'm not sure if my next step is something that I would do for living. I just think I'll always be wired that way. And quite honestly, I got a lot of that, not just from church, but working at Hard Rock. You know, these guys, it wasn't just a business. I know it's silly to talk about this, but when you see words on the wall, like love all, serve all, take time to be kind, all is one, or even better, save the planet, which they were saying before it came popular in the late eighties. When you put stuff up on the wall like that and you don't move your company actions to it, it's it's liar, liar, pants on fire. Like people will call you right. on it. So yep. for me, it it made me so much more aware of um, whether it was litter or giving back or helping people out. I don't care if you're digging ditches or cleaning a beach or or feeding the homeless or blankets or whatever it is. So I'm, I'm hoping that there are people that are, uh, you know, now you don't have to spend time talking about it. I think most people are doing something. Now, back to your question, though, I, I'm not sure what it is. I know that I'm not going to have to work for anybody ever again. Um, I'm not sure you know, at 65, 70 years old, does anybody want to see the, at that time, it'll be white hair. I think white spiky hair, um, talking <laughs> about culture. Um, and I don't know if I even have another book in me. I put so much into that. I feel like it's three books in one. It's color. It's a premium, you know, I, I'm at the point now where, um, I probably will look to invest my money in businesses, whether I'm flipping houses or, you know, doing a fast casual pizza concept or a honey business and help save the bees or who knows, you know, I might spend my money that way. But I think as long as I have a voice and people resonate with the stuff I talk about, I'm probably going to keep uh, talking for a living if that works out. We'll see how long that lasts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I just sitting here thinking about it. And for those of you who have never seen uh, a picture of Jim, one of his uh, signature items is his hair and it's and it's spiked straight up. So, you know, I've always been known for it, though. I've always been known for my hair. And before I had the spiky hair, I had long hair. I don't know when you and I maybe met, but when I first joined uh, the, the training organization, the conference that we're actually here now. I could sit on my hair. I had a long mane. I had a mullet, which I, I have, thought was cool. I have seen a picture seen of that. Okay. Yeah, pictures. yeah. But yeah. you could take that, right? And when it turns gray, yeah. you could brand that somehow or not. You another, think right? so? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll sell spiky wigs. Maybe that's what I'll do. I'm a Guy Fieri wannabe. I wish oh. I, I wish I had his uh, his money. 
Yeah. I joke. Very good. All right. So last uh, question here, and then we're going to, uh, then we're going to have a little bit of fun and I'm going to give you uh, five quick things just to, you know, let the listeners out there get to know the other side of yeah. Jim Knight besides professionally. Love but, uh, so, uh, married, divorced, okay. I've got three Sorry kids. About that. No, all right. that's all right. All right. Um, Divorced, but I got three kids. They're all grown up now. I have a 21-year-old, and I have uh, 18-year-old twins, all girls. Okay, so do I dare say grandchildren? No grandchildren yet. No, I think that's uh, probably a ways off, which is is just fine with me right now. Me too. Me too. My kids are uh, older, but... uh, grandbabies are a little bit farther down the road. Nice. So, perfect, perfect. Yeah, exactly. So to get to know Jim a little, little better, like I said, I'm going to give him five questions. Uh, just the first thing that pops into your head and, uh, and then we'll move on from there. So number one, your favorite band or musician. Oh my gosh. That's a, t- um, 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 yes. Yes, probably my favorite. That's a band, actually. Yes, for those that uh, don't know, but yes. uh, yeah, every iteration of them. I'm a prog rock uh, type of guy. I like Rush too, but yes, if we're doing rapid fire. Yes. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> look up yes y e s. They have some classic albums out there. They oh, yeah. are uh, in the classic rock realm. Uh, favorite place you have been to in the world other than Florida? Boy, I love uh, Bali, Indonesia is pretty fun. Aruba is probably a close second, but Bali and only because I've had a chance to travel where there's hard rocks, but I love it in Bali, Indonesia. Yeah. So that's, uh, that was an interesting question for me to ask you because I know that you've traveled the world opening up hard rocks and whatnot. Yeah. So, uh, it, it is one thing that people don't realize, uh, in this industry, the hotel and restaurant industry is that if you get in the right spot, you can see the world. You can. And yeah. you know, not everybody's a global organization. We happen to have been, and a lot of times they only have one hard rock per country, not only just mm-hmm. a city, but per country. So I've definitely seen the world, um, 40, I think 40 different openings in probably 25 different countries. And, uh, yeah, boy, that question's a hard one, too, because I've seen a lot of cool stuff. But uh, Indonesia is pretty beautiful. Awesome. All right. Uh, do you speak any other languages? No. Uh, the language of rock. Does that count? <laughs> <laughs> that you do, and you do it well. And you do it well. So, all right, what are you currently driving? I'm driving a uh, 2013 Mitsubishi Outlander. It's a, it's a small little mini sport SUV. Um I try and walk the line without being too gaudy w- with my vehicle, but uh, I-, I love it, and I'm able to cart some stuff around. So, yeah, I don't know if that's a cool thing or not. <laughs> I used to have a minivan, so I feel like I'm upgraded. Yeah, those of us who uh, you know raised kids in the uh, 1990s and the 2000s, I think we all had a minivan oh, yeah. or two. Oh, yeah. yeah, I had two of them. So, All right, so you are on a desert island, and you only have one food that you can eat the rest of your life. What would it be? Sushi. Good for call. Sure. Sushi. Yeah. A lasagna too. That might be a little bit too tough to make, but um or if there's a sushi lasagna, I I, I might try that as well. My yeah. two faves. Yeah, I like yeah. it. Yeah. Good. And sushi, you could live on that. I could. Right? You could. Yeah, I mean, uh just from a vitamin and mineral standpoint, you know, sure. you could you could live off that. Eh, so that's... you get scary with mercury, but who cares? So you get well, that. Okay. <laughs> the Drawscast quote of the day. Okay, so it is time for the Drawscast quote of the day. And as always with the guest, I give them a, an opportunity to look for a quote or give me one of their favorite quotes. And I know Jim has one from a 
music related person. So, uh, Jim, what what is that quote? And I know that it means something to you as well. So please share that. It does. I try and use it as often as I can in some of my sessions, but uh, I've actually started to live my life by it. And it's the last 10, 15 years I've been using it. It's you uh, two. If you know you two, Bono, the lead singer, he's got a great quote where he says, the world is more malleable than you think, and it's waiting for you to hammer it into shape. And I used to use it just for my philanthropic sessions. And I think maybe the intent, because he does so much good in the world, that's what he used it for. But when you think about it, life in general is very malleable. And, and you know, you, you can be and do and say and look however you want, honestly. And um, I've gotten to the point where that has really inspired me a lot, that I'm looking for an opportunity to make a huge impact and influence in the world. So I was happy to do it in a department. I was happy to do it in one building and I was happy to do it for, uh, you know, an entire brand. Now I want more than that. I don't even want an entire industry that the stuff I now get a chance to do is crazy. I'm in front of auto mechanics and banking and real estate and insurance, funeral directors and my number one clients, senior assisted living. Like when you can get into areas like that and you can get them to think differently and change, you feel like you're the you're the hammer that's making that thing happen out there. So I, I really love that quote, and I've sort of been living my life by it, and uh, it, it probably resonates with me more than any other music quote. I use a lot of them, but that one sticks with me. The world is more malleable than you think, and it's waiting for you to hammer it into shape. Yeah, I think as you get more seasoned in life, I think you do realize that we have a lot more control over how our life is and maybe yeah. we think about when we're younger. No doubt. Yeah, so... I know that's something that I've learned here as time has gone on. And I try and and impress those uh, messages into my stuff as well. So love it. Yeah. So this has been good. Uh, I can't believe so much time has gone by already. It has. Yeah. So before we say goodbye, I do want to, uh, for the benefit of Jim, replug his book. If you could tell us again the name of your book, please, and where we can get it at. No, my my appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. It's, uh, It's called Culture That Rocks. And it's basically teaching people how to amp up or revolutionize their organizational culture. You can get it on my website, which is nightspeaker.com. That's my last name, K-N-I-G-H-T, speaker.com. Or, of course, you can get it on Amazon. We tend to play in that space. Uh, I do have it also in an, uh, a narrated audiobook format. So for me, I decided to do it on a rock and roll USB key. It looks like a little rock and roll hand. Um, you can order that directly from me, and uh, it's me narrating the book. And I've also got it in some ebook formats for those that like to read it on their Kindle. You'd ask me at the very top of the show, also Amazon and Barnes and Noble, because of the format, I could do it on Amazon, but I've still got to convert it into an iTunes to ultimately get it to Barnes and Noble. But that's coming. But like I said, I've only got the one book, so I've been taking my time. But the print is definitely, I've been very lucky to get that to a best-selling status. So thank you so much for allowing me to pitch that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Jim is, uh, and I believe you are exclusive to Kepler Speakers? I am, okay. yeah. So anything that I do goes through that that speaker bureau, and they're they're fantastic, and uh, sometimes not everybody's cup of tea, and they've got a wide range of other speakers. But if you're looking for a heavy dose of edutainment, I, I tend to think that I'm the guy. <laughs> so I have to think like that. So can they get a hold of you first, and then you tell, and then you'll direct them yep. over to Kepler? Whatever works for them. Okay. Everybody comes to me, I send them to them at, okay. at some point anyway. All right. 
Very good. All right. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for uh, spending some time inside the Drawscast. My pleasure. My uh, pleasure. Yes. And as uh, those of you out there know that when we do have a guest on, the uh, call to action or your homework uh, is suspended and... Uh, you know, re-listen to the podcast or just kind of absorb in what uh, Jim has had to say. And when we reconnect uh, uh, the next session of the Drawscast podcast, we're going to be talking about having a sense of humor as a leader. So I appreciate all of you so much. And uh, welcome into the Drawscast, uh, Spain and Mexico. Uh, if you are the Spain and Mexico downloads out there, please email me, Jeff at DrawsTalks.com. Let me know who you are. In the meantime, thanks so much, and uh, take care. Kyla, please do the honors and close us out. Bye for now. Thank you for being part of the DrawsCast. Check out Jeff's website, DrawsTalks.com, to find out more about booking Jeff for your next event. Also at DrawsTalks.com, you can purchase Jeff's book, Inspired, How Our Differences Are Changing the Workplace or inquire about Jeff's training programs and personal or executive coaching. All of Jeff's video blogs can be seen on his YouTube channel, Jeff Drozowski. Thank you and bye for now.